So um, if you were here with us last week, you know we started our first uh, Sunday in Lent, and we also started a new sermon series, Failing at Sin. And the idea in this sermon series is that we really just aren't that good at being bad. You know, oftentimes in the language of our culture, when we talk about temptation, we're talking about things that we really want to do because they're so great. Like if we could just do this thing that's off limits, it would just be great. We would do it. We would have so much fun. It would be so enjoyable. And the, the idea here is kind of like when you see that type of temptation, it looks kind of like a shortcut. From, where, from your vantage point, it looks kind of like if I could take this route, this route I'm tempted to take, then it would be a shortcut past all the bumpy roads, all the potholes on Poplar, all of the things that I don't want to deal with in life, and it'll get me faster to where I want to be. But I don't know about you, what I've experienced in going for those things that are sort of off-limits temptations is most of the time what I find is halfway along that shortcut, I'm like, uh-oh, uh, I shouldn't be using the Waze app that got me like way off track. I should actually just be using like that standard map app and just going that main route because now I'm somewhere I don't really want to be. And by the time I'm done with that shortcut and I look around, I find that I'm not actually any further along to where I'm trying to get. That in fact, that sinful detour that I took has brought me face to face with the same exact problems I was trying to get away from before I took it. And I think this is for a really good reason that most of us have experienced this in small and big ways in our life, and that's that I don't think we're really that good at being bad. It's kind of like the, the villain in the story that wants to take over the world. It's not just a story either. But once that villain actually has the responsibility of running the world, they do a pretty bad job. Putin, anyone? So that's the idea that we're exploring in this series is sort of a reframing of the, the bad things that we feel tempted to do. And, and what if we were to look at it from a different vantage point of those things that I'm tempted to do are just shortcuts to nowhere, to the place I actually don't want to be. They actually end up taking longer to get where I really want to be. Last week, we heard some uh, wonderful words of wisdom from Stacy Martin, an elder at Christ City who has finished her, her term. And uh, after that, yeah, that's great. Yeah, go ahead and clap for that. Yeah. As, as well as, and you can find that on the, uh, on the Facebook Live if you want to hear, hear uh, her words. Um, and, and I went on to start this series from the text where Jesus is facing the temptations in the desert and he's facing a temptation to turn stone into bread. And what we realized as we looked at this text was that Jesus was being faced with the temptation to believe that God had abandoned him, that he was really on his own 
And what does the world look like? And what kind of decisions do we make for ourselves? What kinds of ways are we tempted to live when we believe that we have been abandoned by God, when we no longer trust that God is with us? And this morning, we're looking at a passage where we see Jesus doing a few different things, but we're sort of zeroing in on this idea of grief. This, this way that Jesus is mourning and grieving over the people and the children of Israel. And what we're going to be able to do there is take a look at the difference between how we might believe that God views our sin or our bad choices and what do we see the God of the Bible and the Christ actually doing and responding to those bad shortcuts that we take to nowhere. So, whose voices do you hear inside your head? <laughs> Can always count on Josh to answer those rhetorical questions. Whose voices do you hear as you're going throughout your life? Maybe parents' voices, maybe teachers, maybe other authority figures uh, like an older brother or sister or a spouse. Maybe you hear God's voice. When I was 23, I had just finished up my bachelor's degree and I was working and going to school uh, part-time and doing uh, a lot of different things. And I worked carpentry during my last little stint of my bachelor's degree, about nine months or so. And in my bachelor's, I studied art. I studied carpentry, I mean, uh, <laughs> I studied sculpture and painting. And this job in carpentry was very different from sculpture. And I had this great boss, a guy named Pat Bernardini, uh, and I, I hear his voice still in my head today when I do a home repair project. And one of the things that he would say to me in the beginning of my time working for him is, go faster. This is carpentry, not artistry. You know, I'd be, I'd be caulking the, the doorposts like I was doing something poetic, you know. I'd be hanging a door like I was Michelangelo, you know, carving in marble. And he's like, just nail it up there, man. And at the same time, I, I started to rent this garage space for my, my sculptures. And when I got in there and got everything settled, the first thing I did was I created a sign that said, artistry, not carpentry, that I could look up and see. But we all hear voices in our head, don't we? Voices of different people that have influenced us. They've influenced the type of actions and directions of our life, the things that we hold as expectations of how we should live. And, and, and some of us, and probably by the time we're all done living, almost all of us, have been sent into some kind of spiral of self-condemnation at one point or another based on what those voices tell us. If that's never happened to you, then God help you. But here's the question. 
how do we distinguish those voices of expectation, those voices that can make us feel ashamed or guilty from the voice of God? Because see, this this question, gone unanswered, can lead to years and years of anxiety and despair in our lives. When the voices in our head we think are God's do not belong to God. The Israelites, God's people, were facing this question and this problem as they were preparing to meet an invasion by a world power. Uh, The Babylonians were on their way and the prophet Ezekiel was calling the people to repentance. And the people of God were incredibly discouraged. They were despairing in many ways because they had lived so differently than the expectations that were before them as God's people. And Ezekiel is tasked with having to have these hard conversations with them. And he is talking with God and God is telling him what to say to the people about their sin, about the ways that they have missed the mark. And in Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10, it says this, God calling Ezekiel son of man in these passages. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So here we see very clearly the voice of God in the scriptures saying, not you messed up. What I want you to do is feel bad and mope around for the rest of your life and relegate yourself to the corners of the world. But we hear a God saying, no, look, that shortcut is leading to nowhere. Turn around and go back. I want you to live. Do not fall into these fatalistic ideas that no matter what you do, this same end is happening. No, you have a choice. You have agency and you can choose to live no matter what those other voices in your head are telling you. Here's the other thing. This is, this is something, you know, it's not something we don't 
talk about regularly at Christ City, but the things that God was talking about are very often a different set of expectations or rules than many of us have been formed to believe in our culture. We tend to think about just these sort of private individual choices of not cussing or a certain sexual ethic that God seems primarily focused about in the scriptures. But when we look at the scriptures, so often we see something so plain and so clear and so unoften spoken in churches in our country. So if we go down just a few verses, down to verse 30 and 32, uh, we can get a peek at these sins and this way that these people were living that God is asking them to address and change. And he's speaking here again to Ezekiel. It's Ezekiel and God having a conversation, probably in his head. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. That's it. That's the sin. Greed for unjust gain. That's what they're talking about here. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. So, We squabble and we argue about a lot of things right now in our culture, but greed and unjust gain really isn't usually at the top of the list. We're usually concerned about somebody with what somebody does. I'm talking about the evangelical church, somebody who has a different sexual orientation than us or um, has a different perspective on uh, race or something like that. We spend a lot of time and energy worrying about those kinds of things. And yet, every time I open the Bible and I read from the prophets and from Jesus, is saying, quit being greedy. You want to feel guilty about something? Feel guilty about that. I don't care if you cussed last week, okay? I don't care if the Ten Commandments are in the courthouse, all right? Quit being greedy. Quit taking everything. So we can't get too far into this conversation without reframing the things many of us have been taught to just spend tons of time agonizing over and feeling guilty over. And when we read the prophets, they don't really seem that concerned about most of that stuff. Can I get an amen there? Anybody? Is anybody getting a little bit freed up right there? Like God's not really looking over my back like when I stub my toe and a slur of profanities come out of my mouth, right? He's not like, oh, well, I'm going to send the Babylonians after you, buddy. And this problem, though, it's so complicated. Like, it's so complicated in our culture. It takes... A, a, a different type of exegesis, a different type of application to the scriptures, to our lives today than it did then because it's, we're, we're immersed 
in so much, we're saturated in so much wealth and often privilege, and we don't see the suffering of other people. And so it's hard for us to know how to connect sometimes. But the choices that we make, the way that we vote, that's why the organization MICA um, is ramping up, and Mariah talked about this a few weeks ago, to do a, a campaign uh, to help get out information about all the local elections. There's like people like the district attorney that are up for election this year that has crucial, crucial implications for what justice looks like in our city. The way we vote is important. The jobs that we take, it's not just a salary. It's not just how can I provide for my family. It's what type of ethical compromises are you making in the workplace that affect and roll down and hurt and harm other people lower on the socioeconomic ladder than you. It's the things that we ignore. It's believing lies and ignoring the present needs in front of us. These were the things that Ezekiel was calling the people of God to account on. We fast forward in time to the passage this morning where we hear the echoes of God saying to the people of Israel, look, yes, you screwed up. You made a bunch of bad choices. You've hurt and harmed the whole of your people. But I want you to live. I want you to make different choices. Don't let the sins of the past continue to weigh you down. Do something now, today, to bring life. And Jesus says, as he is in the middle of healing and, 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 and turning over the tables of normalcy, He's, he's spending his time healing and preaching to those left behind, the forgotten and the downtrodden in the highways and the byways. And then he comes to the name of Jerusalem on his lips and he breaks into a deep sadness and a grief and most likely a lot of tears. And he says in verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The question that we are addressing in this passage is what does God think about me? when I screw up, when I'm greedy, when I'm selfish, when I don't care for other people the way that I would like to be cared for, even those in maybe my own family? And the answer is a picture here where we, say Christ, we see Christ grieving with the grief of a mother. Can any grief really match the care and concern of a mom, seeing their child making decisions that they hoped and prayed would never happen. We see a divine motherly grief. 
You wanna know what God thinks about it? When you really make bad choices, bad implications for those choices that you've made affecting you and others, grief, sadness, baby, why? Why'd you do that, baby? My wife and I, Becky, we were at, um, we were at a store and Xavier was with us and we were trying to tell him like, stop, Xavier. He was playing with a big heavy door, uh, door stop. And he's fast, man. He's, you know, he's got a low center of gravity. He's down there and he's running. And we're like, no, Xavier, leave that alone. And he popped it up and hit himself, you know, right in the mouth. But am I feeling anger in that moment? Like, oh, you bad kid. No, it's grief. It's, oh, it's sadness. Savy, why, baby, why? Don't do it. Don't you see what's happening? So if you want to know if that voice inside your head that's condemning you is from God or from somewhere else, think about this passage. Think about the passage of Ezekiel here, the God grieving over the mistakes, the ways we're hurting ourselves and other people. There's a couple of reasons why I think this is so important. One is something I alluded to earlier, and that is fatalism. The idea that the Israelites that Ezekiel was speaking to were struggling with, that, hey, it's kind of too late. It's kind of too late for me. I've made too many mistakes. I'm estranged from too many loved ones. I've broken too much trust. There's nothing left for me to do but continue on this path of brokenness. And God responds with no. No, today you can choose to live. You can choose a different path. Those voices you're hearing are not mine. You have a choice to know that there is a divine grief over what is happening and that you can grieve too over those actions and you can choose life. There is a freedom here. There's a freedom that God has. You see, another way that you can tell the difference between the voice of God from those other metacritics, those harsh voices in your mind and in your heart is that those voices don't change. They are not free. And the God that we worship is free. He, he cannot, be, uh, cannot be enlisted in someone else's army or someone else's cause. God is free. And what does God do with that freedom? He gives us life and the choice to live today. And Jesus here, we see him grieving and acting on our behalf. Look at this, look at this. Right before this grief, we see Jesus doing these things. So look, look here at the beginning of this passage with me and back in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. The same people that he's weeping over their conduct, he is risking life and limb to heal, to bring freedom to. He says in 33, in any case, 
I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jesus shows us the heart of God. When he sees you doing that thing that you wish you could stop doing that's hurting yourself and others, like a baby chick needing to be shuffled and huddled under its mama. This divine grief, this is what it looks like. That you can't go too far. You can't go too far that God doesn't want to bring you back. And Jesus, again, is foretelling his death on the cross where this grief reaches its culmination when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Does this absolve us of all of the consequences of our actions? No, of course not. But there is something else that can clarify for us around this idea. You know, there's a lot of reasons why kids rebel against their parents. And some of them we can't do anything about. But some of them is because we think our parents really don't know what they're talking about. Right? Right? You don't know what they're talking about. They haven't gone through what we're going through. They just don't want us to have any fun. Right? And what's clarifying about these passages where we hear the voice of God is that God's not an old prude. God's not like, man, I can't believe you're having fun. I, I did not want you to have fun. I can't believe you found that way to have fun. I thought I hid that really good and nobody was gonna figure out that way to have fun, right? He wants us to be free. And when we do things that tie ourselves up in a lack of freedom that hurts and harms us and others, he griefs. So, how are you going to rebel against that? Can you rebel against that? <laughs> a parent weeping and grieving? I think about the, like the Italian stereotype in movies, like, you're breaking your mother's heart, Johnny. He's like, why, mama? Why? I'm so sorry, mama. That's the only thing that can get like an Italian gangster to like change or at least hide his life so he, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't break his mama's heart, right? Here's the thing. This grief, this divine grief isn't just for God though, it's for us. Because free people grieve. Free, people who are free, that serve a free God, they grieve. Jesus here is modeling this for us. He's, he has an incredible courage to face the odds of operating under the Herod of the day and the powers of the day while embracing grief at his people's failure to grasp who he is and what the kingdom of God among them is doing. Jesus is free. He is not captive to giving a superficial spin to what's going to life, uh, what's, what's going on in life. Herod, the antagonist in this story here, seeks to dazzle and distract us, to make us look over here and look over there. But Jesus points to the reality of things, the good and the bad, which brings you to grief.
uh, a few months back, uh, my son Benjamin, he's eight years old, just got his brand new front teeth, and it, then he, he falls off his bike and he busts his front teeth on a curb. Brand, his brand new front teeth that just came in. Broke them off halfway. And I, uh, his mom and I are hearing him screaming like up the street. And we're like, that's not Benjamin's usual I'm hurt screaming. Because <laughs> he does it a lot. Like, this is, a, this is an extra bad one. And when I saw what, was, what happened, I couldn't, I couldn't put a spin on it. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't tell anybody, like, everything's going to be just fine when I saw his teeth. And he, he was saying, I broke my teeth, I broke my teeth. And I felt so powerless. And all I could really do was grief. It was sad, like, I've got a fake front tooth, I know what it's like going through that. I know that it's really something you have for the rest of your life in some ways. Life, when we look at it honestly, needs to be grieved. If we don't grieve, we will not experience the Christ-like freedom to see and to operate in reality. Let me tell you this, grief is divine. What I mean by grief is allowing yourself to feel the deep sadnesses of the losses in your life and in the world. As we close, I just wanna share a couple of two things about grief. That I, that I would be remiss to, to, to walk away without saying these things. Grief can be confused with self-pity. Feeling deep sadness, owning the realities of life can be confused with something called self-pity. Self-pity is where we try to wear our sadness on our sleeve, hoping somebody else will pick it up from us hoping somebody else will feel our grief and our sadness for us so we don't have to. And that kind of thing does not lead to freedom. It leads to a demand on other people that they can never fulfill for you. And it traps you. And it keeps you out of the divine freedom to recognize reality for what it was like Christ. The second thing is this. We live, my generation and younger, in a swing of a pendulum towards self-care, away from self-neglect. And so I've watched this happen. I've been involved in it myself, and I've watched what happens with this newly discovered self-care for people. It's trying to correct the self-neglect that some of our parents grew up being shamed into that that's how they had to act and operate. But in the process, many of my generation and younger have lost some of the discernment for healthy and helpful service and action. So the idea is something like, I've got to take time for myself and so that means I'm going to disengage from anything that isn't supportive of my, that isn't supporting my self-care. And I have two things to say about why I think this doesn't work. 
One is about weddings or marriages, and one is about frogs. Before Becky and I were getting married, we, uh, we were doing some premarital counseling with a couple, a parent, uh, I mean, a couple uh, who were uh, a pastor and his wife. And um, they said, hey, here's something we want to make sure that you realize. We've, pre- we've done premarital counseling with a lot of folks, and some of them will say, hey, for the first year of our marriage, we're going to disengage from all the ways that we serve in the community, all the things that we do just to focus on our marriage. He's like, the people, we've seen that happen a lot. The people that do that have the worst first year of marriage. Because, because two people together aren't, aren't a community. And, and, and you're not gonna get everything that you think you're gonna get from that one other person. That you actually have to live, you're made to live in an interdependent community in a network and relationship of people. And we've all realized what are, the, what are the, some of the pitfalls that happen when that's taken away from us or we disengage willingly from that. The same thing is true with this idea of I have to go deal with my feelings and disengage from all these other areas of life that I was previously involved in. We see Jesus grieving in the middle of his powerful and robust ministry in the world. The second thing is about frogs, and then I'm closing. I have been really concerned about frogs for several years because I watched this documentary with my kids years ago, and we've lost like 200 species of frogs since the 70s because they're so prey to like pesticides and different things like that because they're amphibians, they absorb water through their skin and that kind of thing. And they are a linchpin to the ecosystem in so many different ways that I won't go into uh, in this, unless you really want me to. Just give me a lot of head nods and I'll pontificate for a while. You can look it up, you can Google it. So, Just one quick example. In Central America, some of the frogs that are disappearing would eat algae off of rocks. And since now those frogs are gone, the algae is growing out of control. And that space where the algae would not be that it is now would create homes for freshwater mussels and other invertebrates who would then be part of the food chain and the cycle and the ecosystem for everything that lives in that area. But the frogs are gone. And so the algae is everywhere. And I think that's what happens when we confuse caring for ourselves from completely disengaging from the type of robust life and service and interconnected, interdependent web, and we just go off with counselors and coaches, and we fail to stay connected in a community, algae grows everywhere. So when we grieve, it's not merely taking a break. It's honoring the things that are lost. We lose so much all the time. We lose opportunities, we lose relationships, we lose a sense of safety and freedom in the world. When we grieve, we honor those things that are constantly being lost to make space, to act 
with a divine freedom in the present live today to bring our full selves to the arena of life. That's good grief.